Morning, Steph. Morning, how are we? We called you man of the people last time. You still happy with that? I'm very happy with that, yeah. What have you been up to? Um, not a huge amount. Working, exercising, the usual stuff. Plodding along, really. Plodding. I want you to meet um, Neil Cole. Um, not a man of the people. Uh, I haven't no. found my people yet. But a presenter, a yeah. writer, an actor, chameleon, Corinthian comedian and caricature. What was that from? That was a Bowie lyric, I think. Do, do, you, do you like to do what you want to do above all else? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it's difficult, um, but I've reached a point now where I'm starting to be able to make decisions to prioritise the things that I want to do while still having to do the things that I have to do. And sometimes I'm now getting to the point for the first time in my life slash career um, that the things that I want to do and the things that I have to do are eliding. They're becoming the same thing. There are, there are points, the more points in the year where the things that I want to do and the things that I have to do are the same thing. And I've been, it's taken me sort of 15 years to get to that point. Somebody, a friend of mine from school years ago, described the job that he did working on the railways as an inconvenient means to an end. Because he didn't, he was, he was a very intellectual, academic -y kind of guy. Um, even though we were in a kind of a secondary school, he was, he was way above any, anyone else intellectually. Ended up working for British Rail. And just for the reason that it was just an inconvenient means to an end, i.e. a way for him to get money to read books mm. and do what he wanted to do. He, he sounds like he got a bit derailed career-wise then. <laughs> this is... This it, is but what, it's good to be on tracks. Absolutely. What platform did he complain on? <laughs> <laughs> Again, this is why you're here. <laughs> um, it would, would, would have been good for his self-esteem. Um, as an engine uh, for what he wants to create. I haven't got anything. <laughs> um, but see, the thing is, uh, I don't, I'm not sure about that uh, as a philosophy in terms of, because you still spend the whole time that you're doing your actual job thinking, this isn't what I want to do. And I know that it's a, uh, it, it's a difficult thing. I, 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 lost, my, I lost my dad uh, and my dad, did a job that he didn't necessarily enjoy and he would leave way too early in the morning, get home way too late at night, way too much stress. And that was how he lived his life. Uh, and then it was cut short way too young. And you kind of go, well, that's no, you know, he had some good moments, I'm sure. But to die at 48, when your, your life has been, I'm working and working, working to have the fun times that the money affords that. Go, no, enjoy, do the work you want to do. And sometimes you might struggle to pay the bills every now and again, but that's got to be a better way to live than so that's what I'm saying is your your friend sort of doing his railway job I mean maybe he enjoyed the job as well and he was being disingenuous about that side of things because you have to you have to you can't hate you can't sort of dislike every minute of what you do just because it means you can have a holiday or buy books yeah and have spare time hmm. I was putting the bins out the other day as a job as a as a chore okay a right. dim, uh, well I was told to do it right obviously but I never know which colour the, the, the bins are supposed to be. Because I, I, I kind of subscribe to the idea that you get rid of rubbish, don't, you don't, you're not filing it, which is, you know, in the various coloured bins. And, the guy, and I bumped into the, I bumped into the, the, the bin man. Mm -hmm. And I always like to kind of make a point of saying hello to people. That... Yeah. It's an interesting one, that, isn't it? Because 
they expect you not to say hello and they kind of get scared when you try and engage them, don't they? They do around my area anyway. Because yeah. I think the unwritten rule is you don't engage them, but I think that's wrong, isn't it? Yeah. I, I don't um I I don't do kind of, you know, Christmas boxes or that anything like that. Yeah. But I but I do like to acknowledge them when yeah, they're out when yeah. they're in the street doing doing their stuff. Yeah, they're the human beings. They're... And and this guy and I said to this guy, it was a nice day and I said, Hello, how are you doing? And he went, Yeah, all right. He said, I'm just uh, just been back from uh, just back from Turkey. He said Ephesus. He said studying the uh, studying classical um, military tactics. <laughs> He just came out with this, and I went, "Oh, that that sounds pretty good." And he said, "Yeah, yeah." So that's that's my that's my thing. And where'd you he, go from there? Um, well, I, I was just I was taken aback by yeah. by that that gambit. Yeah, it's an interesting opening gambit. It's like he already had a point to prove that he's not just a bin man. Yes, that was exactly it. Yeah, but he was he was also pleased to be telling me that, and, yeah. and he was I think he was quite pleased that. I was interested, yeah. and I and I was, and I and I, and I didn't act surprised because mm. I wasn't really. He, you know, it, everyone's got their story, haven't they? Everyone's got the, the the things that they do. But he was clearly doing the job as a bin man for maybe just money. I don't again know. a means to an end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Um, the 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 thing about the Turkish. Uh, Constantinople battles uh, and the, the the that area. I have no idea. I've got no idea. <laughs> you you look like I knew what I was going to talk about, but my my time as a bin man was short lived, so I didn't get to finish that. Yeah, course. where do I put plastic? <laughs> Purple. Not right here. No. Blue. Blue. Yeah. It's, that's it's, it's, but that's that's exactly it. it's it's interesting because there's um people make massive assumptions about anyone any walk of life, and I. I, I, I sort of try and, and it's not, it will not always easy, but one of my philosophies, one of my many crazy uh, sort of try, ways to try and live my life as a better person is to always imagine um, that everyone else has their own, everyone else, every single person that you come into contact with every single day of your life has their own pain, their own internal monologue, their own story, their own reasons, their own reasons for passing you at that point, their own... Uh, and you have to uh, allow allow that, as the children would say, fam. Um, <clears throat> you have to sort of imagine yourself in their shoes. And it's very... The, the, the superpower that I would love to have is pure um, uh, pragmatism, magnanimity. Um, because if you could genuinely put yourself in someone else's shoes all the time then that would be an incredible superpower to have because then you could suddenly, and I don't mean in a kind of sixth sense, um, uh, unbreakable, I can, I'm an empath and I can feel your... So you want to be empathy, man. Yeah. Ultimate but, empathy. Yeah, yeah, but not in a way that you want to help, just to kind of go, oh, I can see what it's like. So for, for my example, I've, I've tried this. I've tried this at, uh, to work this into a stand-up routine and it doesn't work. I haven't got there yet. But the idea is, is that when you're really cold, it's almost impossible to imagine yourself hot. It's really, really, really hard. When you're when you're depressed, it's really hard to imagine yourself happy, and that when it when you can't even imagine it within yourself, it's very hard to always have that degree of empathy um, with every other random strange human being on the planet. But I I do sort of try to imagine why that person might be angry or that why that person might look sad. Not to go over and say, "Are you okay?" Because that's not not always appropriate. Just to kind of go, "Oh, I'm in my own. I'm on my own rails." 
to and they, they're on their own rails and i have to respect that um this and, is this is this is kind of this slots into when my dad said everyone's got their own story because hmm. what you're doing is you're you're trying to just just get a glimpse of their story and 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 not be dismissive of it or walk past it without having a little think. And exactly. So, so Bin Man, who is study, going to Turkey to study, um, you know, ancient Turkish, whatever it is, history, battles, um, or um, railway guy who loves reading and philosophy. It's the same thing um, working on a, a few world motorsport championships. Quite often, you're, you're, if you spend any time with the... Um, the promotional girls, like the Monster Energy girls, most of them are studying to be law lawyers, doctors, yeah. and they just happen to be genetically incredible uh, and keep themselves fit enough and public enough to generate enough interests in social media and jobs through their kind of what sort of modeling, but promotional work. And they're, they're studying incredibly hard. And in five years time, there'll be a, a practicing barrister or a practicing doctor mm. and that's you 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 look at them and you kind of go, i'm going to put that person in a box bin yeah. man um, um railway worker superstar whatever whatever box good or bad if you esteem someone really high or if you esteem someone really low uh you've got no idea what their internal monologue is and quite often we esteem all these people that live with their sort of halo effect they live this perfect life and we go god they must be so happy they're often the the least happy people and the people that we perceive as oh low self-esteem they're actually quite yeah well i'm all right quite yeah. happy actually got yeah. no, no no money no problems mm. you see a lot of people in the pub don't you Steph? i do yeah i mean again i i'm not one for making assumptions based on appearance or what they've got to say i mean the point neil made is everyone's got their own thing going on and it it can be incredibly complex, but I'm I'm a, I'm a watcher and an observer. I don't I like to let them talk to me, and then. Well, that's difficult because you get a lot of silent men in pubs, don't you? You do get a lot of silent, tortured, what, what who appear to be tortured. With the, you can see the cogs turning as they drink, and you're just wondering what 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 is going on there. But that is it's a brilliant people watching job for me, and it's something that I really enjoy doing. I bet. Who's the who's the person that's sort of surprised you the most, where you've kind of you think you've got them, and then something happens. Probably actually Nick, who did the um, the first podcast here, because I mean first appearances, you think a scruffy, kind of unquenchable guy who drinks too much, mm. but you scratch beneath the surface and you think, wow. This is quite a complex character. He's got a hell of a lot going on, yeah. and a whole hell of a lot going for him. And uh, I, it's, it's just that, that that unwritten rule again: never you never make assumptions based on appearance, because there's so much there's so much beneath the surface. There's a lovely old guy in in the pub who's in his late eighties who you would dismiss as a, a little old man in the corner, right? But he was a a cameraman right from i think 1940 something 1941 documentaries worldwide documentaries wow he's been everywhere peter he's been, peter he's been yeah, right. he's been absolutely everywhere and he's as sharp as attack he's very ill he's um yeah he's he's very ill the brain is still there though but, isn't oh it oh my god yeah he's an just an incredible character to listen to mm -hmm. would you say you've had a proper job have you ever had a proper job 
Yeah, yeah, I've had proper jobs. Um, How did they go? Yeah, all right. Yeah, I, 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 I look, I, and again, the, I just want to listen to that wood pigeon for a little while. Um, um, proper jobs. I, it's been a while. Right. Um, but I remember when I was sort of paying my way through. Uh, through uni in the summers I used to work in a, a roofing felt factory in Basildon nice yeah yeah um, and I feel and I it's interesting because I was a um, I was kind of kind of quite cocky and I think I sort of I think I knew I knew I think I knew it all and now as I get older the more I know that, that I know the less that I know whatever the um, uh, and I can remember I used to do night shifts uh, at this roofing felt factory. I mean, it gets better. Um, <laughs> and basically, no, but it was a, it's a huge, horrific, noisy, smelly, because bitumen is made at one end and it gets poured onto, you know, ro rows of canvas that get coated in layer upon layer of bitumen and, and gravel. And my job was at the end, is as it gets rolled off and covered in paper, I put them onto a pallet. Ooh, and smelly and dirty. Yeah. And once you've got a pallet full, um, you know, it's like a brief moment of <gasps> that's a break as the palette goes away, and then, then you've got a new palette. Yeah, it starts again. And then you, you know, very very quickly became a master of that. Yeah, and of course, you know, and your brain's going the whole time. But what I was in a world of of men who who did that as their job uh, all the time. You know, they didn't. Ha I was doing it for six weeks in the summer holidays, or three weeks uh, in other holidays to pay for the fun things I wanted to do, yeah. or to pay for my studies and. Um, and I can remember, I, I, I think I, at one point, I, I still feel, you know, you get those moments where you think, I feel a bit of shame. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm getting some shame on. Um, I'm going a little bit of a, a shame blush. You, you know, you, I, there was a guy who would, who would come to work uh, on a Friday night, because I think we started at about 10 p.m. And he'd come to work drunk. And I'd be like, well, that's not, that's not right. Because uh, we we're all, you know, we're relying on him. He was sort of halfway down by where the big hot stuff that could kill you gets poured into the machine that could also kill you, and the stuff that comes towards you could kill you. And I was like, "Grr, I'm I'm 19. I, I feel like my health and safety is being." And I think I I reported him. I kind of went every Friday. Ooh. I know. Oh no. I know. And I I was and I and then I think he got in trouble. And I think he he I don't think he got fired, but I think he had a, a warning. And I think basically what I didn't realize is that he was a very unhappy man. That was his life. The money arrived in his in his bank on a Friday and he would go and spend it, have a drink and come to work. And that was his weekly routine. And I and the sanctimonious 19 year old. Oh, God. And I hate that guy. And it, that me, the 19 year old. Guy. The, whist himself. the whistleblower. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't throw himself into the vat or anything. No, he didn't. No. But, you know, I, he was a, the, the next week. He was a he was a broken man. Uh, and then and he didn't know. But I knew, and I kind of thought, and so I, I often, you know, I, I go back to that moment and realize that that was awful, what I did. And I didn't know enough about the world, um, but I was in that position and that's what I saw. And mm. yeah. The, the youthful, um, the, the youth aspect of, uh, of male development, because I can only talk about the yeah. way I developed yeah. as, a, as, a, as a young man. When you look back on your approach to life and the way the the way that you dealt with things, it's it, it is actually quite embarrassing to to, to think about. Oh my God! Did yeah. I did I really say that? Did I really do that? Did I really go there? Did yeah. I did I really take part in that? Mm -hmm. um, 
And then at some point, no, you don't snap out of it at all, do you? No, you just kind of wear you, wear off the corners. Yeah. It's like a brick, and you start with like a really sharp brick. Yeah. And or prick in in my case, and <laughs> it's kind of, and then eventually those corners get because you go, oh no, I can't say that. That corners go down. Oh, and I can't do that. That corners. That's gone. the pebble bumping along the bottom of the stream, isn't it? It's a, it's attrition. It's the way yeah. these things erode over time in a good way. Um, otherwise, pebble beaches would be really hard to walk on. That's philosophy. Welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but other real jobs. Um, when I was trying to make my way uh, in London, starting my career as an actor, um, uh, I worked in a telemarketing office in Wandsworth. Those are places, aren't they? And I probably did that on and off for about three years. Um, and I very quickly was moved off the phones because I was rubbish at telemarketing. But luckily, I could do data entry. So these fingers. Um, so I did. I was his. I was the boss's sort of right hand man. Batch processing. Hmm? Batch processing. Yeah, everything. What were you Mail selling? Um, a variety of things. Right. Uh, if you're interested, I can send you a leaflet. <laughs> was it? Was it? A re- was it one of those brutally hard sells? Um, was it scripted? Uh, there were some scripted. It wasn't kind of Glengarry Glen Ross level right. core, um, but there were some that was. And, and what was interesting is when I got in there, they employed a lot of actors because a lot of actors, you know, need the money. They yeah. can talk, and it's flexible hours, and they wanted. They were probably on benefits as well, so they could do both. Um, but there was this the, over the time that I worked with the guy, and the guy went through a few changes, and a few his company had to change names, and he went bankrupt. You know, I I, I kind of I was Mister. I'll keep this under my hat because I'd learned from the nineteen year old prick who'd who'd uh, snitched on the the drunk guy. I'd sort of stopped being that guy, so I was like I would Mister Discretion now. So yeah. I was kind of whatever happened. I kept it under my hat, and I think the boss guy knew that I was reliable. So I kind of moved with the company quite as it shed its skin quite a few times. Um, and uh, by the end of my time there, there was almost no actors. It was all professional people who were really good at selling on the phone. And you just hear this. There was this African guy called Joseph who would just have this mellifluous voice and go, oh, I'm calling from uh, Rothschild and I would like to sell you a product. Ah, oh, are you having a nice day? And you just go, oh, my God, I, I would buy from him. And I'm sitting next to him. Yeah. Um, was there a sales bell? No, no, it wasn't like that at all. It was, they, it was kind of, they were sort of selling appointments with... Uh, um, Selling appointments with um, financial advisors uh, and selling insurance to a certain level of clientele, house and contents, home contents, and um, also just information gathering. Like I was building databases of huge companies and people would just phone up and get three names from reception and put the phone down, you know, sort of that kind of thing. Not sure any of that really exists anymore because nowadays it's just, have you been injured? Oh, you've just had a crash, haven't you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did that for a long time on and off. And that was it's probably the closest to a proper, proper job because I wasn't doing it in between things. That was what I did all day, every day for quite a long time. You mentioned discretion. Yes. And um, and Steph was talking about his kind of, uh, his position of um, watching people quietly and... Confidant. Di- Confidant, dis- discre- yeah. Discreetly yeah. and... and prob- yeah, you must have seen some things. Probably extracting pe- things from people <laughs> that... that, that has that happened? Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean once the, I mean once the drinks start going, the, the tongue is loosened, isn't it? And obviously I've got peripheral vision and my ears can prick up. I know when to when to listen and when to get away from the vicinity of what I can hear. Um, I also sadly have observed people who unfortunately have a drink problem but are equally highly functioning individuals. 
and that's quite an interesting thing to to see. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, I can't make a judgment on. No, I just have. I serve the drink. I see them. They appear fine, but you know, beneath it all is a is just uh, a slippery slope. A lot of pain. Mm. Um, that's a quite an interesting thing, actually. And we, you, sorry, I mean, with within talking about discretion, you know, and just leveling it up with the jobs that you've done, mm. Neil. You, you've you've been into some, you've done some glamorous shit, haven't you? Yes. And do you find that 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 cap of discretion has kind of served you well in those sort of environments, in those kind of rarefied kind of uh, celebrity gatherings? I'm, I mean, I'm not asking you to sort of, uh, you know, give give us tales of tales of celebrity bad behaviour, but does does the discretion kind of help? Yeah, I think once people once people know that you're trustworthy, um, that's a huge asset in in life. Um, I I think I have a lot of people. I mean, I I'm, I'm an interesting as an individual. I have what I perceive as a lot of a lot of fr- sort of friend, friends, but they're sort of relatively peripheral. I, I have a very few. I don't really have like a tight circle of of friends, friends, friends. Um, so what I what I find. I do is that I just people that get to know me can come in and out of my life uh, and then back in again and then back out again. They know that if they they can confide in me. And I think so. I think one of the things that you're um, referring to, I did three and a half years uh, as one of the main presenters on MTV Pan European. And as a result, I was privy to a lot of fun things. Shenanigans. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a there was a there was a. a, 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 a party in Milan um in a big hotel where after the after the after the after the party after party there was an after 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 party in the lobby of the hotel where um P Diddy Fred Durst and Khalees uh, just had a right old sing along around the old Joanna um to you know it was about 20 of us and we just had a like a lock in basically uh and but you know you don't I, I, one thing I will say is I have no idea what I would have been like as a human being had Twitter and Instagram existed um, in the early to mid noughties when I was sort of doing a lot of this high profile celebrity related uh, presenting work because a lot of it just, you know, it's all in here and I didn't have the need or desire to film it, to film it, share and post it. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they knew that at the time as yeah. well. Well, social media has put pay to that kind of celebrity partying thing, yeah. hasn't it? Completely because it's. Um, I mean, it's, that was probably purely spontaneous, which never would have happened in this day and age, right? No, but if if it did, the only people because I know that there's still I still sometimes uh, uh, sort of move in rarefied circles, and there are times when no one gets their phones out. There's like yeah. an unwritten rule. This yeah. is the point at which we stop any social media because they have refined they've distilled the people that are in the room to the people that only want to be there for that to be in that moment yeah, rather right. than to say I'm in this moment yes and occasionally that's a lovely place to be and you kind of go oh I've got goosebumps thinking about it now because yeah. you kind of go no one here wants this to go anywhere this is this is a one of those rare occasions yeah. in the 21st century where this is a moment that is happening for its own sake and some fun you yeah. must get a lot of that in the pub though because people aren't constantly sharing you know, they're not all going to go... Exactly right, yeah. Look at me, I'm in the having exactly, a pint. Exactly, yeah. 
yeah, as you say, I mean, that was a treat for you guys only yeah. to lock in there yeah. forever. Yeah. The days of, you know, the heyday of Rolling Stone magazine where the, where bands and um, and film stars and people like that would have their own kind of embedded photographer that would just follow them around all the time. They, they would yeah. be chosen by the band and a journalist a journalist and a, and a photographer yeah would yeah. travel with them both of which was based completely on trust as well yeah. wasn't it yeah so the photographer gets free reign mm -hmm. just just i'll be here yeah and they get all the best shots yeah that's that's when you would see those those you know amazing kind of reportage style photographs of uh mick jagger um uh bowie. rod stewart yeah. bowie and yeah. and uh grace jones all yes. sh sharing a pizza mm -hmm. or and there's Some... Warhol in the background with Basquiat. And you go, this is ridiculous. How, how the fuck does that photo happen? That's montage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, nowadays we'd say that's Photoshop. But those were real people because they were there. They were, they were embedded. The closest I've ever got to that is um, World Cup 2006 um, in Germany. Uh, I was working over there for the channel that became Dave. At the time, it's called UKTV G2, which is a really catchy name. Yep. Um, Trips off the tongue. Uh, now Dave's better, obviously. Um, the uh, um, And me and my mate James were sent out on our own to go and just find stories and report them back to this new 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 format of show, which was a sort of a live a show on di digital uh, cable that was carrying some of the games live, but had a lot of content, a studio show. And me as the presenter and James as the producer slash cameraman, or a predator, as you'd call them these days in the UK. In America, that still means rapist. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, we would go out, you know, fly in in the morning, hire a car, drive to Gelsenkirchen or Dusseldorf or Dresden or an anywhere, find a story, go and either try and get tickets to the match or go and watch the match in a fan zone. Um, post uh, send us send a, a story back do a live unilateral move on to the next city we do three day chunks on our first trip to frankfurt we bumped into ray winston and his mates in a hotel and we did an interview with him and his mates all of his old west ham fan uh, friends for, since he was a kid um and uh, because we sp spoke to all of them and not just ray um i think he really liked us and he invited us to join him like the next time we were in and and that just developed to the point that they were staying in a um, like an old whatever the Austrian equivalent of a manor house is um, in Kustein, just across the border uh, from South Germany, from Bavaria. And about halfway through the World Cup, they said, well, just come and stay with us. You know, this is where we this is our party central. This is our bunker. And they had, you know, they were doing loads of World War Two that, that was there. We, we've got it. We, we've got a, a safe house, blah, 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 whatever the lingo is. Um, but me and James were kind of embedded there and we were filming and there was one day and it was, you know, it was just all blokes. Um, and it was very boozy. But there was one day where we'd been filming Swimming in the Lake chats about the England team, chats about hooliganism. Uh, and then there was a point, you know, we'd had a beer and, and Ray just kind of looked at James and went, camera goes away now, lads. And we kind of went, Ooh. oh, okay. Oof. And then we were in, in, but undocumented. And you go, wow. And that, that felt like the those moments from yeah, Rolling that, that Stone magazine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. From... And nothing, what I'm saying is nothing, no, nothing bad happened, yeah. nothing, illegal wrong yeah transgressive anything happened it was just like we just want to relax now uh, we don't want to worry about being on on so let's not document this 
And it just was just a quiet word and yeah. a gravelly voice. Yeah. And you can bet and play at the same time. And did he call you a slag at any point? <laughs> he did. But there was, there was he, he, did, he did say <laughs> one time. Because we were completely un, undocumented, whatever the phrase is, uh, we un, un, um, accredited, me and James. But because we were often with Ray and his gang, uh, he had access to the England team. Ray did because he was the ambassador for England fans. So he was an anti-hooliganism ambassador. And so we went to an England training camp one day. Sven Joran Eriksson was the boss at the time. And uh, we were just following Ray. <laughs> so it's me, James, Ray Winston. And he goes under the rope. And we just followed because the people at the England training camp just presumed we were his personal crew. Well, you were. Well, but... No one had agreed, has not agreed with the FA or anything. And we got under it and Ray turned around and went, you still with us, James? You slippery bastard. <laughs> <laughs> that was the closest we got to, you slag. It was, and me and James now, we regularly see each other and it was, he, he regularly will go, you slippery bastard. <laughs> you're still kind of, for me, you're still a kind of a, you, you, you've got a stand up in you. Do you think? Do you think you have? Um, yes. Ultimately, yes. Because Neil stood up, <laughs> and I'm just—I was just—and it, and it kind of fascinates me what what, what you what do you need to, to, especially now these days. It's not um, it's not the days of kind of uh, Eddie Izzard, Ben Elton, kind of French and Saunders. Things are very different now, aren't they? And it's yeah. a, it's like a uh, it's probably considered to be a fast track to superstardom, isn't it? And stadium filling. Yeah, during during my tenure on the circuit, I've had two two sort of periods of time when I've been on the stand up circuit, spanning twenty years. In fact, twenty twenty years this year, um, and in that time, it has become. A degree you can do at university, yeah, and a job that you can go alongside traffic warden, bin man. No yeah. way. Yeah. So the so in that time, it's gone from being something that an accountant would spend all day in the office dreaming of doing, and then do open spots for five years before giving up the day job and doing it. It's now something that people come out of uni. I'm a stand up now. Yeah. Um, I think the key thing you have to have is is chutzpah. You have to believe that you've got the the. Um, the uh, bravery uh, mm. and something that you can transmit to a room full of strangers that will make them laugh. I mean, that, that, is, that is number one. Right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I would say that my strengths lie in social awkwardness observations, which I find truly fascinating, actually. Just interactions of different types of groups of people. Mostly, the most interesting ones come from people that don't like each other. Yeah. <laughs> and pretend to, like English people, are fantastic at doing. Yeah. And you can just see the, the tension is palpable. And I just love, I mean, it's quite sadistic, but I just love watching that. I find it so interesting. But that's that's uniquely that's uniquely British and quite interesting that uh, that, that British humour is still a thing. Uh, I'm not. I'm, I, I disagree. I don't think that's uniquely British. I think within within most countries, I think within most countries you still have. We we presume that we you know one of our one of our British humour things is to be self-deprecating, and within that we think that we have these 
personality traits, but I don't think that's true at all. You know, having done a lot of traveling and, and, and lived, not lived, but spent a lot of time in other countries and embedded among um, the natives, uh, I actually think most most communities have exactly that, that yeah. awkwardness. It's yeah. not, it's not, it's a myth that it's unique. You don't think it's uniquely British at all no, then? No, not at no. all. I think groups of people do you think it, do don't you think it's ever that? bond in a perfect way without that awkwardness, without that kind of judge judging um, that in any country is very, very unusual. Just because when we see Venezuelans protesting or all, all united or, you know, whoever in different, we, we presume, oh, we, we would never do that. And maybe we're a little bit shyer, like the shyer horses, but um, maybe... <laughs> Uh, but I think that, first of all, I think that's a myth. Second of all, is a very interesting angle to go down. If that, if you think first of all, that's your bigger picture, because as a stand-up, you have to you have to arrive on stage with a worldview that the audience can tap into almost immediately. Yeah. And there are two ways that if I if you were to come to me for for lessons on how to do it, right, this is how these are the two ways in which you could make that personality work. One is to create that environment in the room, yeah, like Stuart Lee does, yeah, um, or you do it like Ricky Gervais does, which is to talk about that in a in a observational way. Yeah, those are the two ways. So you either take the hard route, which is I'm going to make you feel as awkward as the the stuff I'm reporting at you is. That's that's kind of awkward and that's very difficult. And yeah. audiences will hate you and you'll die on your ass yeah, loads of times. Yeah, right. Um, the other way is is like Ricky Gervais is to observe them. And say, oh, that was awkward, isn't it? You know, that's that's the other, those are the two ways with that worldview. Yeah, yeah. Is this a module at university? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, maybe. I, yeah, it I, sounds I, like I've it. I've never thought of um, explaining. I'm gonna have to I, I sort of informally had loads of these chats driving up and down the country with open spots in the car. Sort of on the way up there, you get a sense of what they. Um, what they want to do where they are in their career and then on the way back when you've seen them you kind of go well, maybe you should think about doing this and those little kind of sometimes you feel like maybe you've helped some people along the way I don't know but um that's that's what I think immediately is you you would succeed if yeah. you kind of went I'm gonna tell you about um you know why you won't talk to you kind yeah. of thing yeah but you do get uh you do get true naturals don't you in in comedy yeah uh, and and but also those that have worked really hard well, there's to, to kind of hone their craft. Yeah, of course you do. I mean, there are so many examples. There's less of a call for people with funny bones anymore. Um, you know, on the circuit when I started, you would still get people who just decided they needed to dress up as an ironing board and sing Tina Turner songs for five minutes. And you'd go, thank Christ these people exist on the circuit because it breaks up the monotony and they don't have a career plan. They just they have a burning need to do that. And I remember seeing so many brilliant um novelty acts and they're ve very, very rare anymore. But also even just someone who can walk on stage and fiddle with a microphone stand, do a bit of almost accidental, incidental slapstick, some physical comedy, in the room, they might be hilarious and they might go grow and grow and grow because people, have you seen so-and-so? They've got funny bones, they're naturally funny. Your TV producers aren't are going to struggle to translate that to, oh, we'll get them on Mock the Week, we'll get them on 8 out of 10, we'll get them on blah, 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 we'll give them a, a 10 minutes on, the, on Live at the Apollo because they would just be crushed. 10 minutes on Live at the Apollo and they fiddle with the microphone stand and the, the viewers at TV go, oh, dead air, click, change channel. Yeah. So, But mm. the people that work really hard, like your Jimmy Cars, for example, he's off, I've heard him talk on podcasts, uh, but and I was there when he was doing it. It's like flying. It's like, it's like um, pilot hours. 
Like people could talk about how many gigs they've done or how long they've been going as a stand-up. If you say I've been going for five years, that's meaningless. If you've been going for five years, you might have been doing three gigs a week for five years. Jimmy Carr, when he started out, he was doing three gigs a night. So it's minutes behind microphone. So it's stage hours. Yeah, it's right. the, the muscles of being in a room, yeah. sensing where the audience is, philosophically, energy-wise, whether they're in tune with you, and dealing with that timing, 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 people, different groups of people, and just kind of mentally and physically and chemically taking a, an assessment of all the different types of audiences and how that joke works there and that doesn't work there and just build, build experience. Yeah. And he just did that for years and years and years and years. And it, sounds so t it sounds so technical and unfunny. When you when you describe it, when you describe the the, the industry, still funny, but yeah, it's it's hard work, like Brutal. anything. Yeah, it really really hard work, and it is technical. There's some like you know that you'll watch a stand up who's been doing the same routine. This doesn't happen so much anymore, and that's one of the good things about a younger generation sweeping through the circuit. Is there was a time a few years ago I, there was one stand up that you would watch doing the same routine that he's been doing for fifty almost years. word for word. Yeah, yeah, word for word, and getting the same levels of laugh, maybe to diminishing returns over those 15 years, yeah. but still still doing it, still doing it technically brilliantly and still selling it to the crowd like he's just thought of it on the way to the gig. Yeah. And that is the skill. Except it's, if you do that once on TV. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all of, gone. It's, yeah. it's killed. Although these days, you know, standard TV doesn't kill a, a stand-up set anymore because no one really watches TV properly, you know. No. I mean, True. they do, but if you if you do your ten minutes on on Apollo, you can still get away with half of that material, I think. Um, but write some more anyway, because it's your job. Yeah, and then you'll <laughs> be assigned to Dave. Yeah, exactly. But have you have you actually have you actually tried any stand up? Have you done? Have you been put in the position? I have having... not been put in the position as of yet. Like a speech no. or a presentation. I, I've done some. I've done some like. Um, well, I did some comparing for a, for, oh, yeah. a, for a cricket dinner. Yeah, that counts. Um, which went down quite well, actually. Uh, it was it was only there was only kind of forty or fifty people there. Had you done prep? Had you written jokes? I did it loosely in yep. my brain, but what I did was I I worked out levels of drunkenness and levels of uh, different things that I could go into at different times based on what people were talking about. Okay, nice. So I I was just basically going from uh, different stages getting people up, presenting awards and giving okay. a little snippet of each individual that came up. And did you enjoy the, yeah, the I did. moments where you got a laugh and you knew, I'm in control of this room? Did that give you a little kind yeah, of... Yeah, it was in a pub in Putney, um, the Jolly Coopers, and they gave us the whole of the back area. Right. So, um, yeah, it was really good, actually, right. getting, a, getting a, a bellowing laughter from everyone. Because it does tickle into your, a part of your animal brain. That, it does. That you kind of go, ooh, I like this. This yeah. is new. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, it was great. Yeah. No. Have you ever done a best man speech? Yes, I did a best man speech. Um, What'd you open it with? It's not the first time I've risen from a hot, a warm seat with a piece of paper in my hand. That's the classic, <laughs> Something Something equally as bad as that. Yeah. Um, was it original or was it... A, a, it was, I was actually... This is a marriage that's now breaking down. Well done. Um, <laughs> you killed it. <laughs> her family were quite uptight. And I, I just knew that I just couldn't go. I was heckled through. It was, it was about half an hour. One of the um, sisters got spectacularly drunk. And she was on the seat just in front of me. And I thought, I've got a microphone here. I've got 80 people in the marquee. Don't push me. 
but I just saw in my mind the aftermath of me going at her mm-hmm. with she get the high heels would be coming off. <laughs> All right, I wonder what you were going to yeah, say yeah. then. Yeah, and Not uh, advantage of so I, I kept it clean and I didn't offend her side of the family. I just went for him. Yeah. So therefore, you're a gentleman. Exactly right. But that was that was one of the most nervous I've ever been in my entire life. The ten minute build up to that. Yeah. And everyone kind of shouting my name and banging on, wow. on the champagne and I was like Christ but once you get going it was just over in a it was over in a second and overall an enjoyable experience yeah very success. very much so yeah, cool. and a huge sense of relief and achievement actually because yeah. I was incredibly nervous was for it that. was it on video did somebody S- video it no no one videoed it no one videoed it the uh, first the first ever video production that I made must have been about 89, 90, maybe even earlier, was The Art of the Best Man's Speech. Really? Yeah, on VHS. Is it still available? Just one VHS. Could you put it on YouTube for us now and we can watch it? <laughs> well, it's on one VHS tape. Yeah, but that's what <laughs> I mean. Can you digitise it, oh, stick it God. on YouTube? That would be brilliant to bring that back. I'm, I'm sure that my friend Dave has, <laughs> has got it somewhere. But and what was the art of the best man speech? If you want to summarise the video, well, it was it was pre-internet, so we must have done our research. I can't even remember how we would have done research before the internet. Books, newspapers. The, the I think there were books yeah, called yeah. the art of the best mm-hmm. man speech, mm-hmm. and there were there weren't there certainly weren't any films or or no. or snippets of video. Yeah, I mean, you go onto YouTube, there are tens of thousands of yeah. very slickly filmed. Yeah. Best men's speech, most of which are in America. Um, well, they're the best men. They are the best men. Americans are supremely confident behind the mic, aren't they? And in, Again, in those... that's a massive general, generalization. I think the ones that we see behind the mic in our, in our sort of sphere of reference appear that, that confident. As a rule, they are slightly more But confident. you've interviewed thousands of people, yes. and, and I've interviewed hundreds, mm-hmm. but I've, I've done the corporate thing. So yeah. I've, I've sat down in front of people in suits talking about their business one way or another and i've done hundreds of those mm-hmm. and without fail every single american or north north american yeah. canadian whatever just come across so much better than your average british executive they're just better at it yeah that's true and i don't know why because because even if you took a you know a a, a trained public speaking um public schoolboy type mm-hmm. and sat them side by side with you know, an average American executive, they were, the, the, the American would just well, steal. It's because they believe that they've got the right to be there. They have the self-esteem. They don't, it's not second-guessing every word they say that, that it's going to be judged because someone's looking at them and going, you don't deserve to be there. They kind of go, I, ha- I am happy in myself and I, I, I am. That's what it is. Yeah, they kind of, they've been grilled every day. You stand up and go, I'm an amazing person. I am a member of this amazing nation, and uh, we don't have anything like that. So, they've they've been they've had self esteem, you know, to a certain extent drummed into them. I would say is part of that. Yeah. So the people that succeed, that's what you got to remember: is you're interviewing people that succeed and have that confidence. So that that has succeeded for them both professionally and personally. I would say, mm. um, best man wise, mm. speech wise, what you what you described there is a classic difficult Friday night crowd where you know there's a group of people over here who could turn 
There's a group of people over here you don't want to offend. Yeah. There's someone in the front row who you really want to tear a new one to, yeah. but the rest of the room aren't aware of them. Yes. Um, that's just that standard Friday night yeah, sure. junglers or, yeah. uh, or so or any you know club around the country, the Glee Club or so you've yeah you've you've handled that mm. with a plum. And it's definitely something that you clearly have the skill set to do yeah. with strangers. You should yeah. try it. Yeah, definitely, definitely try it. Just quickly before you go, do you remember the Screaming Blue Murder clubs and incarnations around here? At Hampton Court Bridge at the Mitre. Leather Bottle. Leather Bottle in Fox Wimbledon. And, Fox and Hounds as well. Yeah. And also very early on, there was a, there was a place above Tony Roma's right next to the bridge. A big, long... Long Club, where I very first saw Screaming Blue Murder. Really? With Sean... Sean Mio? Mio. Sean Mio and Eddie Izzard. Fantastic. But there was a... It was it was really big round here. <clears throat> the Rose, also in Hampton. Above a pub. Little oh, room. I've got a Sean Mio story for another time. We should get him in. He, he lives in Surbiton. Not when I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> you slippery bastard. Smash his face in. <laughs> Well, that's a little bit more bunkum, but thanks, uh, thanks, Neil. You're welcome. Hope to see you again soon. Well, there's plenty of ways to see me these days. Yeah, comedian. All the plugs, all, all of the plugs, will be in the in the in the th description underneath. I presume all the things I'm doing. Yeah. Well, that's your camera. You can just say, please subscribe or, <laughs> or like and subscribe. Have a look at my links. Yeah. Hi guys. I'm in four things that are available on Amazon Prime at the moment. Oh, Three yeah. feature films and a TV series. So that's my current claim to fame. What are the names of those? What, um, the... Dark Ditties. Um, Stag Hunt. Finders Keepers. Stag Hunt. That's a feature film. Uh, Richard the Lionheart Rebellion. Oh, that looks good. Feature film. You look good in that, yeah, if you don't mind me saying. So. And um, there's a, a web series called iDog, which is now on Amazon Prime. And all I do in that is have sex. <laughs> Steph. Yes. See you next time. Absolutely. Been a been a pleasure as always. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. Well, see you next time. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>